Hey, what's up? It's me, Chris Ryan, host of The Watch Podcast. And if you're a fan of this show, I wanted to let you know that there's a new Spotify feature that lets you automatically follow the show. Tap the bell on the show page to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. And by turning on new episode notifications, you'll also automatically start following the show. All the latest episodes from shows you follow can easily be accessed in the What's New feed on home. Now, let's get into The Watch. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, the Louis DeJoy of The Watch, it's Andy Greenwald. That Just works on a lot of levels. slowing down my mail on the mailbag episode. What's up, brother? But I always bring DeJoy whenever we do an episode like this, right? That guy doesn't have a lot of W's, man. You think about it. You know, because he's what's his job approval rating? Is that just is that tenured being the, the head of the United States Postal Service? The Postmaster I think it's General? harder. I think it's hard to get rid of. Yeah. So nobody likes him. Nobody's yeah. happy. But he's still here. He's still here. He's still slowing down our mail. But you know, what's not slowed down is the, the quality and prolific nature of our questioners who send us electronic Are you sure? messages. I, I, I sent out a call for mailbag questions via Facebook Messenger. <laughs> And I have got, not gotten any. So I feel like something's up. No, we put out a uh, call for questions on Twitter and on our Facebook group. And we got lots and lots and lots of really good ones. We'll try to get to as many as we can today. If we didn't get to yours, please know that uh, it's not personal. You know, we just try to we try to do what we can here at The Watch Incorporated. We haven't done a, uh, a mailbag in a while, Andy. Um, and there's a lot of great can TV just, on. Can I just make a quick digression about The Watch Incorporated, Chris? <laughs> because I do think people should know that it's just us and Kaya, right? Like, and we are lucky to have Kaya. Like, if Kaya left, this whole thing comes crashing down. We were we were texting yesterday with a, with a buddy of ours who is offering a, a great guest. Hopefully, we'll be able to book it. And he literally asked us, which one of your many minions, I think he was being semi-serious, like, who in The Watch Incorporated coordinates interviews for you guys? Right. <laughs> I feel like we should... Create an email address like Doug at the watch.com or something. Do you, uh, you know, the thing is, is I've been reading these Pandora papers. You want to start creating some shell corps, some offshore yes. accounts for us, you know, like why? Yes, are we- I have. I've been cultivating a donor relationship with Governor Christy Nome for a number of years now. And I think the watch needs to HQ in South D. I was know? thinking, I, I heard Christy Nome's got the inside track on a great realtor. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, she's she, she's doing such a good job that I almost feel bad bothering her. You know what I mean? I know. Uh, well, we have a lot of questions about, you know, there's a fair amount of questions about contemporary TV, TV that's on right now on this uh, in this batch of questions. But I thought we could start by looking towards the future. So we yes. got a question from Donna Hetchler who said, any 2022 shows that you're already excited about? And I thought this would be a great opportunity to quickly mm-hmm. address the House of the Dragon teaser. Uh, the first new Game of Thrones content we're getting since the much maligned finale a couple of years back. Yeah, that dropped. We're recording this on Tuesday. So this is fresh on our feeds. And man, Chris, I don't know. I, we're bringing a lot to this conversation about a two-minute trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, not, we're not bringing... Even. Just like, it's like a real teaser. It's, it's just like, like a, a couple of character okay. flashes and stuff, yeah. But, but, but in terms of the baggage that we brought on our cross-continental dragon flight, is you know our experience covering the first show uh, heavily in multiple mediums, our experience with that last season, the knowledge that there was another pilot put into production for what, by all accounts, was a slightly more radical reimagining of what House of uh, House of, sorry of what Game of Thrones could be, didn't work for any number of reasons from what we, we gather. Immediately pivoted to a more red meat um, Targaryen, red story. banners flying yeah. Targaryen story, and here we are and. My takeaway from this trailer is I think it looks like they use their HBO's expertise in development in, you know, international production to deliver something that is exactly what the AT&T shareholders were hoping they would deliver. Mm. I say this, look, people know, and I don't think, I don't think listeners are fired up to revisit the great, (laughs) the great, uh, uh, you know, cross- Westeros wars of this podcast over the last decade, but I don't think you and I, I think they know we don't bring deep emotional connection to the source material to our coverage of Game of Thrones. Not we to really, the source really material, love, but I, I love the show. Love the show. And we love yeah. talking about it. Mm-hmm. But this feels like exactly what a corporation needing to boost its global streaming service wants to deliver. It has appears to have all of the greatest hits of later season Game of Thrones and, you know, not much else new to it. I mean, am I, am I, am I misreading it? I, the cast list is really strong and really impressive. The budget is clearly astronomical. I just can't kind of get over the fact that a, this trailer dropped the same in the same series of press releases in our inboxes as HBO Max's we are launching in Europe strategy. Mm -hmm. So the fact that this is absolutely, and all shows are to a degree, but the fact that this has been developed in lockstep with the larger corporate global streaming policy is notable. It's smart because all of England is home because they don't have any gas. So they'll just be ready for (laughs) House of the Dragon anyway. Or or alternative transportation, I think is what you're saying, and fuel sources. I I think that um, I'm also bringing to it the conversation that we had yesterday. For us, that's Monday. So at the beginning of the week, on the previous podcast, let's say, about the many saints of Newark mm-hmm. and how as we get into this really, really hypercharged IP era, the the goals of creators and the goals of conglomerates may be more divergent than ever before. And I think that if you put, you know, 
Casey Bloys and the HBO team in a room. Like, of course, they, they love David Chase and they want to do the greatest artistic thing possible. But underneath all of that, would they just like young Tony driving around whacking people? Yes, I think they would because I knew that would do bigger numbers. And this appears to be, in addition to being impetus for maybe my greatest opening buzzkill of a podcast ever, this just appears to be giving the people all of what they want. It's, it's dragons burning people up. Cool. That's fine. That's going to please people who love that part of Game of Thrones. But I'm not sure uh, what the more casual TV fan is getting from this. And I also am not sure as a larger maybe point to make about these upcoming 2022 shows. Shows aren't really trying to appeal to a broader casual TV fan anymore. They're appealing to the genre fans of the stuff that pre-exist and predate the material. You know, this story... The, it functions in the Game of Thrones series, not as in the Martin books, because I still haven't read those. But in the series, there's an element to this story that is history bordering on mythology. And mm -hmm. I'm curious to see how that's executed. Uh, and I'm curious to see whether it changes how I felt about the Targaryen story within Game of Thrones, the series that we watched. I'm going to keep a very open mind about this. Like One thing I will say is that what Game of Thrones did so well was balance everything out. So when you had these icy-eyed, dragon-riding Targaryens, mm -hmm. you also had the sort of upstairs-downstairs element of King's Landing. You also had the almost like classical Arthurian uh, bastard who would become king, uh, the, the snow, like Stark legacy thing mm -hmm. there was a lot there for all different types of viewers i think it appealed to so many different people because there was palace intrigue but there was also sword fighting but there was also this mystical element but there was also just very straightforward like kids coming of age and mm -hmm. uh i hope that this new series has all those elements i hope that this new series in scope is not just limited to people whispering near dragons about the power of dragons you know like at a certain point that becomes a little bit limited despite how blockbuster yeah, the, it will come off you know the, the dragons aren't fun i'm sorry mallory earmuffs the, i don't think the dragons are interesting i think people who wield dragons are interesting you know or yeah. have that kind of nuclear power essentially are interesting i i think it's also worth noting that the cast is stacked if we were on here predicting you know, talking about upcoming TV shows that we didn't know much about. And I was telling you that there is an international co-production coming to HBO with Patty Considine, Olivia Cook, Matt Smith, Reese Funds, um, Graham McTavish, who's a pretty cool character actor. I mean, that's very much of interest. We are here for Patty Considine in any role. Yeah. So it's interesting, but I but I I think I just to fold it into the larger conversation that I think we want to have in response to this question, it was a bracing and surprising bummer for me to like try to Google upcoming shows 2022 and realize just where we're at culturally. Look, we've spent two years talking about the upcoming Disney slate and Marvel and Star Wars and Lord of the Rings or whatever, but it was another thing entirely to just lightly Google other people's lists of anticipated shows and realize that the first 20 are just IP. Yeah. And so it's staggering. I, it's where I, we're at. Here's one thing I always say when we do these kind of like what's coming next yeah. year lists. We just never know about Northwater and we never know about It's a Sin and we never know about I May Destroy You and we never know about Squid Game. Like the Reservation thing that, dogs. And I mean, the thing that TV does really, really well is because it's so, so, so much production going on 
you just never know when you're going to find something that's really, really special to you. And I think that I have, over the last five or six years, always had at least two or three shows in my top 10 that I had Mm -hmm. no idea existed before the year started. There will always be these blockbusters coming. There will always be shows that you really anticipate and watch five seconds of, and you're like, oh, they they, they didn't get this right. But even though this list and the list you're talking about, here's a couple of, of, of titles. Lord of the Rings obviously will be one of the bigger releases of the year, but could also be one of the bigger flops of the year. You know what I mean? Like that the variance is very high with that. Mm-hmm. There are the, what I like to term the cool Star Wars shows, which is Obi-Wan, Andor, and the Acolyte, Station Eleven. There is, it's there, like it's, it's being written about, but I don't know who's in it or who's making it. Devil in the White City, the Eric Larson book, which is an amazing, amazing piece of literary nonfiction, was supposed to be a Scorsese DiCaprio movie. I think they are producing it. I believe it is on Hulu. I'd be very curious to see the execution of this. It's an incredible story. And the one I'm kind of interested in the most is Tokyo Vice, just because of the Michael Mann involvement. But that's a lot of uh, of stock being put in three Star Wars shows. You know, and yeah, I, uh, and I, I just I would like to think that, you know, the Colin Farrell, Oliver North show is really happening or that there are three British shows we don't know about and three FX Hulu shows like The Old Man or whatever coming out that we just, you know, next June, we're just going to be like, I can't believe what a great TV year it is. Yeah, I appreciate you making that point because we don't know. And we're lucky to live in a world where things like Squid Game or It's a Sin or the year or last year I may destroy you can just knock our knock our socks off and come out of nowhere. And we don't we we don't know what's coming. And or with reservation dogs, I mean, I keep thinking about, it, and we talked to Sterling Harjo about this a little bit. Like that show was in full production in Oklahoma last year. And if you happen to be in Oklahoma, which I did not, you may have just been driving along and seen like big, you know, we're shooting here and big production vans. And you may have gone up and said, Oh, what's shooting? And they would have said, A show for FX. Who's in it? You might not have known who those people are. Six months later, this is a major thing and one of the best shows on TV. And that's thrilling to think about and to consider and anticipate. We simply simply don't know. And I am intrigued about Marvel properties like Ms. Marvel or She-Hulk or Moon Knight, you know, which, remember, (laughs) is happening with Oscar Isaac and Ethan Hawke. I mean, that's crazy. Um, And, you know, kind of curious about... I'm sorry to to say this, but I think it's it's accurate. Like lesser IP revivals, like Disney's doing Willow. Maybe mm-hmm. that's fun. We don't really know. But looking, I, I think it's a little grim. Just the the sheer number of repackaged genre IP shows that are about to clobber us next year. And I think it's. But I think the the important corrective for me is in addition to the new shows that you mentioned that are peaking out a little bit. Let's just remember that in 2022, we're going to get new seasons of Better Call Saul in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, that's happening. And Better Call Saul is the last season. So that's incredibly exciting. We're going to get new seasons of Industry. We're going to get a new season of Reservation Dogs. Um, I would imagine a season four of Succession. Yes, I would absolutely imagine that. We're, 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 we're going to have a lot of good TV. But this is, this is going to be a really, really big year. I think this, in terms of this tsunami of of ip content and i think it was we actually got a respite honestly this was supposed to be 2021 and the pandemic delayed a lot of these shows or or at least the the total deluge and and here it comes so happy steve writes in with the question with the changes to the tv landscape 
are there any current show, genres of TV that you don't think will be prevalent five, 10 years from now? And I, I, I guess that's why this kind of dovetails nicely with what we're talking about, because if you draw a line and say everything needs to be a reboot, sequel, prequel, spinoff, or reimagining mm-hmm. of some previously existing, not story, because I don't, you know, you go watch the filmography of Clint Eastwood. He essentially made the same movie six or seven times about a guy who comes to a town and does some, you know, some defending of and, that town. And, and cries macho. Um, but literally just, it has to have some name recognition to get greenlit. That's a finite pool of titles, right? Like at a, at a certain point, we will run out of, I know what you did last summer reboot potential type things. And I I don't know if that like, <laughs> starts a new flood of, of original f- filmmaking or original titles. But uh, what, I mean, what, what's, your, what's your take on where we're at with that? Do you think this is just going to be indefinite? Are we going to start oh, rebooting? Chris. Oh, Chris, you beautiful, beautiful boy. <laughs> um, I, I want to preserve you. I want to treasure you. As people who listen to the podcast know, I, I still maintain my other job of, of hopefully writing and producing television shows. And, and as, as such, I sometimes am given access to I just, the development I think your work on Blue Bloods of, has been amazing, honestly. Thank you. Um, <laughs> pseudonymous. So unfortunately, that's blown. Thanks a lot. Um, but the problem is I was pitching a cross-genre, cross-age pool series called Bluey Bloods, which is an animated Australian cartoon about grizzled dog cops. And but with with a heart of gold, and I felt like that's a show that grandchildren and grandparents could watch together. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, my point is, like if if I have a meeting with Sony or Warner Brothers or Showtime or whatever, like I get their whole grid of all the stuff that they've bought. A lot of which is in development, yeah. Yeah. right? Or a lot of it is in uh, maybe they don't even have writers assigned or a take, and. Every single movie you have ever seen is in development as a TV series to the point of absurdity. There are movies that are being developed into TV shows that I, I, I mean, I wish I, I don't, I feel like I can't mention it, but let your mind wander. That's not stopping because, you know, we are still, although it feels like we've been doing this for a while, this kind of like shuffling of the of the of the decks in terms of the media conglomerates and everything kind of becoming siloed into itself as recently as like this year you could point to studios selling content to other services meaning for example um well i'll just use our our buddy sam esmail as an example and you know who has his deal at ucp which Mm -hmm. is universal is making a tv show metropolis and sold it to apple Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's that's the way it used to work. Increasingly, I think Universal Studios will sell to Peacock and Warner Brothers will sell to HBO Max and everything will be kind of siloed off. And and so the second part of that conversation is what do we have in our library and let's get it moving. Anything that we own, what can we which is why, why sell to ourselves? One of the reasons why Apple bought MGM, right? Uh, Amazon. Amazon, Amazon, Amazon sorry, bought MGM. Yeah. Yes, exactly. To have more. Yeah, to have access to more mines, basically, to to get down and, and try to find coal or diamonds or whatever these mines. I've lost the mining metaphor. Anyway, um, here's the area that I think might start to, to drop away. It's not specifically pre-existing IP in terms of let's make the Mighty Ducks TV show, which I think exists. I don't know why I grabbed that as an example. Um, the limited series that 
attempts to recreate relatively recent history uh, and or true crime. And I'm, it's a wide brush, but I, I I kind of mean like Mrs. America. I feel like yes, American Crime Story impeachment, you know, which didn't really set the world on fire. And, you know, we're about to get, and maybe this will be the ultimate test case, but we're about to get like the Joe Exotic, Tiger King mm-hmm. scripted show. We're about to get the dropout. Um, we're about to get, um, which is about Theranos. We're about to get um, Shrink Next Door, which is based on another podcast. Um, I'm actually optimistic about some of the shows I just mentioned, and they could be quite good. But I feel That's like- That's why you didn't rush- watch Tiger King, as you were waiting for the, the scripted take- on Joe Exotic. Yes, I want John Cameron Mitchell. I don't want the real thing. Um, no, I, I think um, as part of the rush to only do things that people kind of recognized, both in terms of a selling strategy, but also in terms of generating interest internally, every podcast got gobbled up and every like you know profile in in magazines or newspapers got gobbled up. And I'm not really sure to what end. You know, I I think uh, Mrs. America was a great example where. All of that made sense, right? Because you get incredible actors to sign on to play showy historical roles, which everyone wants. You get Kate Blanchett on basic cable, for God's sake. And the show was fine. And her performance is good. But it didn't net out to the kind of, you know, a rapturous attention that I think shows like a show project like that would have gotten half a decade earlier. And mm-hmm. it definitely didn't turn into awards. So you're kind of stuck in that mushy middle where you've just kind of done something that people kind of know. And I feel like that's going to fall out of favor and in its place, I'd like to think that a different middle class of TV will emerge, but I'm not sure that it will. We may be back to a world where we only have Lord of the Rings or Pax, and both of those things. <laughs> Which is a lot like good, the, what's in, that's like basically what happened in the movie business, right? Exactly right. <laughs> right. Exactly right. Okay, uh, that's inspiring. Let's talk <laughs> about. <laughs> let's Pax go. To, is good. Let's go a little bit back in time. Hogan Short asks, "What's your favorite hour-long drama pre-prestige TV?" Hogan mm. is currently watching ER and there's some stool, cool stuff going on in there. I agree, Hogan. I think ER is routinely, especially in the first, you know, five seasons, pretty reliably excellent. The performances, the filmmaking was actually quite revolutionary. All the wonders, all the like, you know, the moving sets, like the walls moving on sets to go from room to room. Uh, I thought, you know, obviously it captured Clooney. It got Margulies. You've got, you know, like an incredible cast on ensemble, Anthony Edwards. So ER is actually always a favorite of mine. It sort of now lives in perpetual loop uh, rerun territory on, I think it was on TNT for a while. That's one of those shows, though, I believe it's on Hulu now, that it has had like a little bit of a like waiting to find its 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 streaming home uh, moment. I don't know if it's if it will ever wind up like it, on Peacock or like what the it, eventual... it's Warner Brothers. Okay, so uh, HBO Max would eventually be a home for it if they buy it back. I'd be curious to know still though, like you know whether or not Netflix remains the true, like truly the only thing that can make a show a retro phenomenon mm-hmm. the way it's doing currently with New Girl, the way it obviously will with Seinfeld, the way it did with Friends. Um, it's doing now with Friday Night Lights. It's just like if you want a new generation of people to find your show, or if you want a current generation of people to just have your show on a loop. It, I, I anecdotally don't know if that's happening with Peacock and The Office or HBO Max and Friends, but we have talked about before where it was kind of like 
I don't, you know, I, maybe maybe everyone who could possibly watch The Office four or five times has already done so before it goes to Peacock. As far as uh, this question goes, though, I will just throw out a couple of titles aside from ER. Uh, Homicide Life on the Street, Miami Vice. Yes. I like Law and Order a lot. I don't know if I would call it a prestige, a, a, like a like a drama. It's more of a procedural. And I'll just say uh, X-Files and Twin Peaks, which I'm sure you will as well. Yeah, I mean, Twin Peaks is my favorite television show of all time. Absolutely formative. Love X-Files, miss X-Files. Really, I, I, I mean, ER is a great place to start this question just because... It, the the piece of it I think I would also add it, it wasn't just how radical the filmmaking was in the star making but the serialized storytelling was really 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 gripping yeah it certainly didn't invent that but as you know that show hit when we were eighteen years old and and realizing and really connecting to the fact that these characters and these doctors and this hospital they were they were going to grow and develop and change from episode to episode was really I don't know, really grabbed me. Um, I have kind of a strange vote for this because it's not a show that I've watched recently, but it is one that really resonated at the time. And it is a show called Once and Again. Hmm. Um, Once and Again was a show made by Herskovitz and Zwick who made um, 30-something and they made My So-Called Life also, or they were producers behind it. They really owned a space that does not exist anymore of like, soft problems emotional drama where it was about people and mm-hmm. you know i think it is worth saying uh, upper middle class white people primarily and yet they the stories that they told were really affecting and i and i don't know if there's any place for these types of shows again once and again ran on abc for three seasons um, from 99 to 2002 what's funny about trying to remember something that is still you know that is just 20 years ago is that in my mind, it was kind of a small, short-lived, noble failure of a show. And then I Googled it right before uh, we recorded, and they made 63 episodes of it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's an insane thing to say. Yeah. But basically, there's nothing, you know, there's no mystery to the show. There's no, there's nothing to figure out. There are no answers. There's no Was it the uh, Seal Award no on this? The Great Seal Award, the Great Billy Campbell, the, the lord and lady of this kind of hour-long drama from those years. Just very charming, wonderful performers. They're basically... Uh, divorcees who kind of merge their families and marry and then stuff happens and it was evan rachel wood's first big breakthrough she's fantastic the filmmaker todd field had a show on it eric stoltz shows up just a very enjoyable exercise in emotional storytelling and i bring it up not because necessarily it deserves to be rediscovered or resurrected but kind of miss that you know i don't know how you make or sell a show like that these days I think a lot of that kind of emotional family storytelling gets just sort of shunted into other types of shows, whether they are, you know, we were talking last week about um, Willie Jack's parents on reservation dogs or the extreme or the less extreme parts of euphoria or something, right? Like it's all spread out, Yeah, but there is no show that's just kind of, Oh, Oh, that's nice. Oh boy. I hope, hope she passes her test or whatever, you know? Um, I wonder about that. And I don't know if it could be, I don't know how you would package and sell it today. So for that reason, maybe that's why it exists on the other side. The you know what you would have curtain. to do essentially is you would have to sell a very big star on the idea of let's do a classic family drama, weekly family drama. But I, 
Like you would have but to just wouldn't... basically get Reese Witherspoon to be like, I loved those kinds of shows and I would yes. like to just revive that model. But Reese Witherspoon but she... probably wouldn't want to do 65 episodes of that show. She won't do it. Yeah. So what, what she would want to do or what other actors of her caliber would want to do is Marriage Story, which is like, let's take all of the, like the subtle fault lines that can be developed and explored and reflected upon over 60 hours of television and just crank everything up to the spinal tap levels in the booth and you're done in six. Right. Literally, like your soul has been reeved after six, but that's what you want to do. So the, so the marketplace and everything has changed around it. But it's interesting. What I mean, of the shows we're talking about, this pre-prestige stuff, I feel like the only one that kind of gets talked about as something that people still go back to is West Wing. Um, I mean, that's right on that, the edge, though. That's, that's, isn't that right up to where Sopranos started? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, once and again, ran after Sopranos, right. but but I mean, in terms of, I, I guess I wonder why that is. It was it was deeply serialized, but I also think that it, it this the Sorkin-y part of it and the wish fulfillment part about a, a, a government that works. I mean, if you're talking um, about Sorkin, I, I it would feels say as like, comforting as yeah, Sports Night. If it's pre prestige, if you want to call it that, like that's a half hour sitcom, I guess, but it also has very powerful moments. I would I would throw that in the ring. Yeah, I. You know, I, I I also, I think we've talked about just, you know, while we consider ourselves relatively like students of TV, I don't know that I'm essentially, I don't know if that I'm a student of TV history. So I, you know, mm-hmm. I recently rewatched some or watched some Columbos that I, I'd never seen because they were on Peacock and, and they were enjoyable for sure. But I don't often go back and like yeah. watch Twilight Zones or watch, you know, MASH or or, or, or anything like, it's it's not like with movies where you're like, oh, I think I should go back and check out this 1940s film. It, for me, the distinction, and this touch, we touched on this a little bit with Sopranos, I think it's the time commitment too for if you just want like a nostalgic vibe hang. You know, I, I just, Rockford Files is incredible. I mean, uh, David Chase worked on it for many years. Um, James Garner, one of the great, great movie stars and small screen stars of all time. But, you know, there's still 40 plus minutes, 45 minutes. That's very different than throwing on an episode of Cheers, which for me still operates like a magic tonic. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's just, it's like cinnamon toast and a mug of tea when you were homesick from school. It just feels great. Um, and it's digestible. The, the hour thing as a revisit, it just doesn't quite, I don't know, doesn't, has never really quite connected with me. Uh, let, you know, we talked a little bit about Sopranos, in the last couple of episodes and Sopranos obviously has one of the most famous series endings of all time. Uh, David Firestein asks, uh, we always ask about shows you want to see rebooted or get an extra season, but what if you could give a show just one more episode, which show would you add just one more episode to? And I just thought that was funny because mm-hmm. obviously in some ways, I bet there's like, you know, 40% of the fan base of Sopranos would just be like, just give me five more minutes. If not one more episode, mm-hmm. I'm going to answer this question a little bit cheekily, David, which is to say that I would give one more episode to Game of Thrones, but I would put the episode in the middle of the last season. That's a mm-hmm. a, a season of TV that I thought just kind of like cut the corner at the very last lap, even if it was just one more episode of, honestly, just like plot logistics and and kind of setting things up so that it didn't feel like everything was happening at 1.5 speed at the end of the season, I think it would have made a difference to how people felt about that season and how people felt about the show in general. Uh, although I think obviously that show, I don't think took as much of a hit as say lost did, you know, maybe. Right. What's your answer here, Andy? 
This is such a tough question. I wish I had a, a better or more glib answer because I think that, first of all, I think the Game of Thrones one is is the best. I think I agree with that. I think that's a great answer because that's an example of something where I really perceived, I don't want to say I felt because we certainly didn't know, but perceived just running out of real estate. And it just would have benefited everyone to just have a little more cushion to finish off some of those storylines. Um, but this is such a tricky one because when I think about shows that I just want more of, it's not ever really that I want more at the end. Because generally mm -hmm. when shows come to an end, they're almost almost all ready to end. Whether because they've you know capped off their story magnificently or they're on fumes or whatever. What you want is an extra episode in the middle when everyone is out of their minds executing, right? Mm -hmm. When everything is at their best. So yeah, like one more episode, even though there were already 24 or whatever of from the, one of the first two seasons of Lost, sure, you know. Um, another episode of season three of The Wire would ruin everything narratively, but it would be great to just hang with everyone at the peak of their powers uh, again. And I think the ultimate reason why I struggle answering this is because, just to take two examples, two of my favorite shows of all time ended with agonizing cliffhangers. One is Twin Peaks, the original two series of Twin Peaks on ABC. And the other is a more recent show, uh, Terriers on FX. I want to be back 10 years ago and have multiple seasons of Terriers. It should have had multiple seasons. But the ending for what the show was, the cliffhanger that it ended on, was perfect. And it was kind of delicious. And it was the right place to end it because baked into it, and I won't spoil it for people who don't know, but it ends hanging on a question about what someone is going to do. And that character is left dangling exactly in the spot that defined who the character was. And I think ultimately that's the right way to do it, even though it's painful to say it. The Twin Peaks thing, I I've written about this before back in the Grandland days, but the Twin Peaks thing ended, Twin Peaks ended on the most excruciating cliffhanger to, that I think ever could possibly be imagined. And sorry, I will spoil this slightly. The absolute greatest pure lawful good hero is corrupted by the most pure expression of chaotic evil. Mm -hmm. And then the show ended and nothing happened about it for 25 years. But as I wrote a couple of years ago when the show was being rebooted or announced that it was going to be rebooted, that taught me so much about like our own power over these narratives that shape our lives. Like we're powerless. We're not making the stories. Right. And learning to live with that anguish and that ambiguity, I think, helped me appreciate that kind of ambiguity in art and storytelling going forward. So I, this age version of me is cool with it. We get what we get. As, as, as my daughters learn in preschool, you get what you get and you don't get upset. But run back the tape 30 years, I cannot tell you what I would have given for 30 more minutes of Twin Peaks. Just right. anything, anything to find out what was going to happen to Special Agent Dale Cooper. So, This is a really interesting question from Pep. When you sit down to watch a new show or season, what are you generally looking for or hoping for? For an example, is there a certain vibe, something genre content specific, strong POV, quote unquote, confidence in the creatives? And uh, I can take this one first if that's okay. Obviously, I have a predilection for certain kinds of stories or certain kinds of genres. That's that's not a secret. Although I'm pretty open to anything if it's you know if it's interesting or if it's formally creative or if if I'm just find myself locking in with it. But I was kind of interrogating this a little bit because I was watching some shows last night of varying levels of quality, and 
you know, the thing that I, I realized that I still respond to in TV is dialogue. Um, I still mm. think that if I'm watching a show and it seems like anyone involved with the writing of the show has any feel for how people either actually talk or mm-hmm. has a creative angle on how people should talk like in their in their dream space, i.e. like a Sorkin kind of patter, I will forgive a lot of stuff because I'm interested in how people are talking to one another. And especially if, you know, I think one of the sort of, um, I don't know what I call it, a tragedy, but one of the things that haunts a lot of major television shows because so many major television shows are these huge franchise, dense genre shows is that most characters either talk exactly alike or Mm -hmm. spend all of their time doing exposition and just stating their characteristic resume by being like, well, you, I'm a bad man, but I want to be good. You know? And it's like, well, I, I want to be the first woman in space. You know, it's like that kind of stuff. That's just like, it's never revealing. It's always stating. So when you, when you come across something, I think the North water is a great example of a show that is beautifully written and is written in a way where almost every single speaking part is different from the other. And you can tell by the way somebody talks, the words they use, the vocabulary they have, what kind of education they have, what kind of education they lack, how evil they are on the good to evil spectrum, where they are in their lives, like what their worldviews are, but in a way that is expressed through their their speech in, in a really natural way. I, I think you know what I'm talking about with the variety of characters on that series. It's mm-hmm. one of my favorite of the year. What do, what do you look for when when you first hit play on a show? It's hard to top your answer because I think that's what I look for in dialogue and voice and style is what I look for in, in anything, whether it's TV or, or movies or a book. But I I think, I don't want to be too ambiguous here, but to go back to like three beautiful discoveries that I had last year in 2020 and what linked them, I'm thinking specifically of three shows that I had no expectations for, no anticipation for, and they 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 just, you know, knocked me back drop my jaw, um, I may destroy you, uh, industry and zero, zero, zero. And the first two may be, you know, sexy people in London. Um, they have that in common, but the thing that all three shows I think have in common is they're absolutely electric in their confidence and their style in not escorting you into an unfamiliar world, but pushing you, Mm -hmm. pulling you into a place that you've never been. And the stakes seem enormous and the highs seem high, quite literally so in the case of industry. Um, the lows seem perilously low and they marry the style with music or needle drops or soundtrack or feel or casting. And you just can kind of feel the potential crackling like uh, crackling like power lines. You know what I mean? Like you want to just be here and you're excited that there's more. Um, you can't, order that in development. And you can't know you have it on the page. You know, these are examples of things that I think elevated every step of the way. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure that all three pilots were exceptional on the page, but I think they're testaments to what can happen with material when everything that is brought to it is additive from, you know, from sound design and editing, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't know if that's a helpful answer because those shows may not appeal to everyone across the board. And again, you can't kind of pre-select for those things. Mm-hmm. The flip side of it, 
you mentioned the North water. I wanted to mention it too, is I, I, I hope I still can hold on to a younger person's patience for letting a show tell me what it wants you think, out of me. You think young, young people are particularly patient? Great point. Um, no, but I do think, I guess I'll use, I, I feel like I've gotten less patient yeah, of course. Um, yeah. with new shows because we've seen so many of them and we, you know, it's been professional in many ways for both of us. But um, the thing about Northwater is the, you know, I instantly was struck by the, the direction and the scale and the ambition. But I wasn't sure I was going to hang. And as everyone who listened to the podcast, no, it took me a number of weeks to get through it. But what it what that meant was I kept thinking about it. I knew that I liked it. And I had to come to an understanding with it that it wasn't a, I'm going to burn through this in five nights. It was a, when the stars align, aka my wife's not on the couch, I will look forward to having mm-hmm. this. And so that relationship was different, but that's a different way of understanding that I'm going to like a show. It's less immediate. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bell one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 1231 Excludes tax must update to rewards. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Let's do one more about like sort of current TV. And that this mm-hmm. is one that was asked in a lot of different ways. So uh, Harry Breitner asks, does Squid Game have the belt? And if so, is this the first time an international show has had the belt? I think that um, uh, hmm. probably the answer. So like the belt, right? Like this is a thing that Andy and I used to do a little bit more consistently. Did this start at Hollywood Prospectus? <laughs> I mean, I Harry's question is so beautiful because it suggests, again, maybe one of our minions who's booking interviews for us is keeping track of our bits. I think that, I'm just trying to remember I, I if we were remember. Do, we did this at HP. I think that it's... I think it's the watch. I think it's the watch. And, you know, I remember specifically, like, saying the succession had the, the bell. I mean, the thrones, we've done this before. But it's basically this idea that there is, at any given time, there is a show that has the 
best show on TV, but it's also like a little bit of, it's like Apex Mountain. It's like hard to describe, but it's, it's the like, show everyone's talking about. It's the show everybody's talking about. Now, for our purposes, usually Andy and I both have to like the show for it to be the show that gets the belt. So I think a lot of people would be like, does Ted Lasso have the belt? Is Ted Lasso a monocultural water cooler phenomenon? And I don't know because there are no water coolers anymore. <laughs> like I we, I don't go to an office, so it's it's tough. Like I don't know on a Monday or a, or a, yeah, on a Monday, like what everybody watched the night before other than the people who I always talk to. But that all being said, I would make the argument that Squid Game has the belt in a way that I have not seen a show have uh, since Succession season two. I don't know. I mean, I I don't remember a phenomenon like this in terms of obvious mass popularity, critical acclaim, mm-hmm. meme ability, and breathlessly having people be like, "What episode on are you on? What episode on are you on? Are you watched six? Have you watched six yet? Have you watched six yet?" Yeah, I, I I don't remember the details of what we've given the belt to. I I would imagine though, like I may destroy you was a co-pro yep. a co-production between HBO yeah. and I forget I forget which British channel, but that had the belt for sure. And and is British. I, maybe in terms of a foreign language show, this would be the first to have it. I think we need a new belt, right? I mean, I, I know nothing about boxing, so I'm gonna try to. Yeah. attempt to guess but wasn't there an idea like then there used to be more regional belts and they were unified yeah under, like, and then the you could get into different weight classes you can get into you know yeah the unified belt all that but and stuff this like is that. it right like it, it, it's doing everything we would arbitrarily ask of a show that we would reward in this way i mean and not just not just everyone talking about it but like it's redefining success what it means in the 21st century it is instantly making megastars out of actors, not just, I mean, for us, actors who I would imagine the majority of American TV fans have never encountered before. Yeah, I watched episode six, and we won't talk, we'll talk about the show maybe in its entirety um, next week, but I watched episode six last night, and, you know, one of the best performers in it is, uh, she plays Ji Young, and she's, uh, She's partnered with with the pickpocket, and and she mm-hmm. we learn a lot more about her backstory in this episode. So I was like, oh, I, I I really hadn't noticed her so much in previous episodes. Let's Google her and discover her six point five million Instagram followers. I mean, I know all of this is arbitrary, but that is significant. Yeah. Um, but I also think that what Squid Game does, and and this is something else I think we should speak about next week if we're able to, because I've been led to. I, be, I it's been made known to me through people messaging or whatever, that there are tropes at work in Squid Game that are common in KTV mm-hmm. that we are not familiar with. And I find more exciting because of it. But I'll say that it just seems to be doing something that it appears impossible, not just uniting the globe, but actually redefining what television can do story-wise. Because the extremity of the violence and the stakes and the emotion and the humanity. And then that it's good. Mm -hmm. I think that's ultimately when you see these messages, like our buddy Damon Lindelof posting on Instagram about it, the subtext of this is I was willing to accept this as a global phenomenon and get on board and have fun, but fuck it's good. Yeah. Like that is a game changer. So yeah, it is, it's the biggest show of the year and it's redefining. I think what it redefines what success means on TV. Should we wrap up with a couple of fun ones? I've been having fun, Chris. 
This whole thing has been fun. <laughs> um, I love podcasting. This was a really sweet one. So I wanted to read this Liz Rourke one. I love your friendship. It was especially fun to hear you both reminiscing over Train Spotting. Andy, did you watch T2 Train Spotting 2 yet? Not yet. God damn it. I will. I will. Uh, and, at, we'll, and we'll podcast about yes. it. Yes. As a funny aside, I saw Train Spotting in Spain and thank God it had Spanish subtitles because the Scottish accents were a wee bit of a rough go for a while there. Also, they did not literally translate all the times a character took the Lord's name in vain. It was an amusingly conspicuous. The question. Who was one of your earliest TV crushes, and how do you think that shaped your views? I can only assume that early viewings of the Rockford Files fed my love for cool cars and mystery shows and a soft spot for James Garner. This clearly led me to Magnum P.I. and Miami Vice. This is a really interesting question, because I first oh I took it God. literally, and I was like, who, yeah. who was my first crush on a TV show? Yeah, and there's only one answer for that, by the way. Uh, who? For our generation? Denise Huxtable. Oh, really? Yes. Yes. Right? I'm trying to think like, of for just being like, who was the first, like, you know, celebrity you actress Mallory that you Keaton? fell in love with? Mallory, I, I was going to go to the Keaton family. I was, first of all, thank you. This is, this is our classic friendship on display here because doing some mind reading, Family Ties was next. And I wasn't a Yothers brother. You know what I mean? Like, I was not all about her. <laughs> but, but Mallory was very important yeah. to me, for sure. But there's two things that were a little bit. And Mallory was a little bit tough and and scarier in a way. So I don't know if, which I which I think I liked, but I didn't understand that feeling in when I was eight or nine years old. Also, on Family Ties, Alex B. Keaton had a murderer's row of GFs. Man, he dated <laughs> Courtney Cox. He dated Tracy Pollan, who he later married in IRL. So I'm just saying there was more competition yeah, there for sure. As far as the genre question is in terms of right. like watching something and then always, I will say that I think that when I saw NYPD Blue, it made me really interested in not necessarily the uh, act of law enforcement as much as like the vocabulary and the very specific vocabulary of different jobs. So NYPD Blue, a lot of the way that people talk to one another and the things that they say to one another are very, very loaded with like the sort of vocabulary of like being a detective and all of it is like you know did you clear that case did you follow up with this thing but it's it's all like milchian shorthand and and, and delivered by dennis france and david caruso and these people like who are just really like experts at at, at handling that dialogue so NYPD Blue, I remember being like, I understand what's happening, but I don't know all the words. And that being a really intoxicating feeling and, you know, wanting to seek out shows that felt like that. It's wild to me that you credit NYPD Blue as an influence because I think in a, the dialogue does matter on that show, of course. But one of the lasting contributions that show made to culture was men walking yeah, around without nudity. pants. Yeah. And I, you have on other <laughs> podcasts, not this one, talked at length about your love of of crisp selvage denim in the house yeah. at all times. You know, there's a whole other plot line from you about wearing khakis that I'm not even going to get into. Yeah, that's that's um, from, from Skyfall. <laughs> so so I do think that um that's that's just interesting to me because you or maybe it, it influenced you the other way. You saw as we all saw the full moon rising over Caruso Island yeah. and you were like, "No, that's not going to happen here. What about you? Did you? Is there any any genre uh, first love or any any kind of like first love? And then you were like, oh, I, 
now I'm super into this? I, I wish I had a, a cleaner answer. I think collectively it was um did jill eikenberry get you into litigation (laughs) a martinez i would do a podcast of just naming cast members of la law like i diana moldauer richard dysart like i that is that is that would be very fun for me um remember when corbin bernson was like on every magazine cover like tv's hottest guy well (laughs) and it was just like a dude with thinning blonde hair Harry Hamlin and Mr. Blair Underwood yeah, take true. umbrage at that. I mean, that show was just fucking Adonis City. Okay. Um, was Jill Eikenberry married to Michael Tucker? Because the whole thing was like two of the people on the show were married yeah, IRL. And I they think played, so. Like, that was, I think so. Man, did I, did I ever tell you about the, the family? Um, this, this is my, my wife's uh, home, home videos, like birthday videos that, that her parents had filmed over the years. And that they then, unlike unlike my parents, they were organized and like put them all on a DVD. Mm-hmm. So there's a DVD you can pop on and you can see my wife and her sister like at different years, like one bowling alley party to the next, right? And like just when you're about to see like, oh, is my sister-in-law going to also go roller skating this year or is she just going to totally change the narrative? Suddenly, the trunk slams. And L.A. Law begins, and not just like a special L.A. Law, just like episode 18 from 1987, because as would happen in the 80s, my in-laws needed their fix. And they were like, grab a tape, grab a tape, throw it in. What tape is it? We don't know. Record. Yeah. And they recorded over the rest of the birthday video, but didn't know until they digitized it. So if you guys want to see episode 318 or whatever of L.A. Law, come by. I've got it at crisp (laughs) digital video disc. Um, Digression aside, I, I I don't have a specific thing. Just I think detective shows because I really liked um, Moonlighting as a kid. That was a great show and also with great banter. But I probably would also fold in like my parents loved Mystery mm-hmm. on PBS mm-hmm. and there were the Agatha Christie adaptations and I'm sure other ones that I'm not remembering. Those leading into you know actual detective shows, whether it was like Columbo reruns, which I liked and you mentioned, or Twin Peaks and so on that type of storytelling is something that I liked. It was just kind of a slow IV drip of content during the 80s and early 90s. We got a fun seasonal one from Derek Murphy. Uh, spooky season is upon us. What is CR's favorite content to get him in the Halloween vibe? Same question for Andy, but for people that don't love scary movies, bonus, what show or movie still sticks with the boys because it scared them so much as a kid? Um, oh my God. Yeah. I'm kind of curious, what's your answer? Or do you just do, do like, are you like, that's cool that there's just like a skeleton hanging from the neighbor's house, but like, I do not participate in this narrative? Well, I have children who are so, 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 so excited um, about Halloween. So there are fake spider webs and stuff on my home. And just today on the way to school, we were discussing my daughter in the backseat. It's like, this is a quote Look, dad, Halloween kills. And I was like, yes, sometimes. <laughs> But if you're careful, it doesn't have to. Um, so they're extremely fired up. So about that's because um, she can read. But is she maybe like hooking up? Like no, at, she just intuited at she school. Just had, like, is anybody yeah. just like? Have you heard of Friday the Thirteenth? In third grade, no, that has not. 
Thankfully, that has not that is not. That's because but Bill doesn't have any kids at that school. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. Did you hear did you hear Bill talking to Billy Crudup, which was a great, great, great interview, by the way. But he and I highly recommend it. And Crudup is a legend. But Bill was like, I love Almost Famous so much. I showed it to my daughter when she was six. (laughs) I I have questions. Like, I just want to know what did she like it when they were all singing? Was she like, Penny Lane seems sleepy. Like, I I just want to know, like, what part of the movie was the most resident to a six year old. But um no, I don't engage personally. I don't. I I don't feel like I, I'll I'll reach for a pumpkin ale maybe and drink it, but I will not do so while watching my favorite horror films. I don't have any favorite horror films. I it's a it's a pass for me. The second piece of the question, though, do do you want to do your first part though? Like, what do you like to return to? Because you go on haunted yeah, hayrides. I mean, I, mean you're a lunatic. I think that this last year and a half has been enough of a haunted hayride. I don't yes, know that I will you. be uh, sitting in a, in a big you. bale of straw with my, my my strange neighbors. But yeah, we've already started firing up horror movies. I think, um, you know, I've, I'm doing a couple of big pictures about horror movies coming up. I, I What did Phoebe and I watch this weekend? That was good. I mean, watch like a weird 2010 horror movie about some Londoners on a boat trip. That start getting attacked from the the reeds surrounding the marshes that they're and, sailing and, on. And, and when someone emerges from the marshes to begin the killing, mm-hmm. what sound comes from the couch where two of my good friends are sitting happily? Nothing really. I mean, doing. I think we're, we're our nerve endings are pretty shot at this point, but like we we still get scared. I think we mostly watch them for the setups at this point. Yeah, I don't mean like do you shriek. I just mean does do, do you go. Ho ho! Here we go. Yeah, like, no, we do do begin. a lot of like that's fucking idiotic, that that kind oh, of okay. stuff. Uh, but yeah, in terms of like you know, so th- so there's definitely that. What were you going to say for the second part? I mean, I, I just want people to know my antipathy for horror films did not come from nowhere. Like I was a child in the '80s who attended sleepovers and you know had a distressingly low amount of power or influence in these circumstances, which I think Chris can attest to was challenging as an only child um, in group settings. And also, you know, it wasn't like there were multiple choices because it was the tape that came home from West Coast Video or whatever. Right. So it was either watch that or pretend. I, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know what else there was to do. There was nothing else to do. Go to bed. So all that said, Poltergeist on VHS tape I don't even, I mean, maybe it would actually be a powerful thing to like reclaim the narrative and watch the movie now and be like, that's silly. Those maggots in the meat don't even look real. Mm-hmm. But all it is for me is just like like a uh, Don Draper sales pitch in the carousel of just hyper hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic like terrifying imagery. It was it was it was a really scary experience for me watching that movie. The thing that sticks with me the most from my childhood is is actually something where I don't even know if it's literally in a movie. I mean, I know it is, but it's basically the tracking shots of the town in Halloween with like mm. leaves blowing. And then if I'm ever lucky enough to be on the East Coast during this time of year and I see like a scene like that, like if I'm driving through New Jersey or whatever and I I see like leaves blowing across a suburban street. I'm like, hell yeah, dog. 
But there's a positive. See, look how look how messed up this is. <laughs> you love it. Um, let's do a couple more of fun personal ones. Uh, you know, I I was I was wondering about this. Tommy Penalver asks a music version of the blind spot combo that the Sopranos brought up. What are some of you guys' musical blind spots? You could maybe do some per genre or just focus on artists that people agree are transcendent, but you just never got. Do you deserve? Do, do you have one of these? Um, like it's not for me. And I mean, don't say the dead because that's not like. Oh, is that what you're gonna say? The dead? Yeah, that whole. But like, yeah, it's the dead. It, that whole jam world, which was a point of pride. I like the dead for I think for both of us. But it used to be like a big thing, like that we you know yeah. You but that was also more like just that. like that was like anti hippie sentiment. Yeah, not like in the sense that we were conservatives, but like you know like, we were <laughs> Alex P. Keaton's. We were like take uh, a shower, burnout. I was just thinking the other day about how I probably need to like go listen to the Beatles, but I haven't done so in actively in like twenty years. That that's a really good pick. I I think that. I'm not I have no idea what it would be like for for younger people but I think for our generation Beatles was the defining musical moment for our our parents generation or at least my mom and so grow up with it just as the most ever present most famous and it's such most a huge rock thing. critic band too but it but that said because they were so big and famous and connected to our moms I never did the like oh hear the deep cuts on side B of Revolver that are actually the good songs. You know what I mean? Like I I just assumed I knew everything and then never, never kept diving. And then later in life when things were reissued or you get a little more perspective, I'm like, oh, well, the Paul McCartney solo albums are really good or the George Harrison record or whatever. But I think that's a pretty good call in terms of using the same kind of like um, encyclopedic rigor that we used to devour other bands' catalogs. It just never applied to the biggest band in the history of bands. Anybody, is there other, is there other stuff? I mean, Chris, guys, Chris loves jazz, but like mostly hard bop. That's the stuff that he knows a lot about. <laughs> um, let me see if I can find one more that would be like a fun personal. You know what? I love this one. Jeremy Abrams asks, we know that Andy likes weird chips and snacks from other countries. Mm-hmm. What's a fave snack of yours that people would find interesting or surprising? To make it entertainment relevant, maybe one you enjoy watching a show. Only the hard hitting questions here. Thanks, Jeremy. Wow. What's what's wow. what's Did, the number one chip in the house right now? Just out of curiosity. Well, I, you know, I, I always have to have multiple choices of chip. Chip guy, big chip guy over here, and I, yeah, you know, I, I think I think this might surprise people. I like a classic potato chip either plain or salt and vinegar. Like you got to have that as like a a firm backbone to your snacking regimen, Mm -hmm. your snack program. But the other thing that I really, really love to do is, you know, every other week or so I'll go to the Japanese market in little Tokyo and just, just stock up on any flavor I haven't tried before. Which sometimes now do you get this, or some old do you favorites. get like a personal size bag or is that family size? Well, they're mostly in personal size bags. You can get the more like ever like twenty four seven. Well, I try to engage the children and sometimes like my younger daughter likes salted egg flavor potato <laughs> potato chips and and was kind of into the hot chili and seaweed but then there are other ones like the salted mackerel flavor or the barbecue eel flavor or the spicy squid flavor truffle from urchin yeah that that chris you wouldn't do that would be too rich you can't put the truffles on the urchin come on you gotta let the urchin sing the urchin chips were very good and she did like those but so i like to keep those going but but I, I worry about the parameters of this question because 
post-dinner watching this week's What We Do in the Shadows or something, that's not the time I'm reaching for, um, you know, a, a freshly imported bag of like a four cheese or corn soup, corn poppers. You do it before, that, not. chips before dinner. Well, no, I just mean like, it's not really a TV thing. Like like on the weekend or something, we'll be like, let's try this or something gotcha. during during the day. Gotcha. I, I'm not above a chip after dinner. Let me be clear. I'm not a dessert guy. So I will, I will in the afternoon buy a bag of salt and vinegar potato chips and be like, my family will enjoy snacking on these for the next five days. And then six minutes after they're asleep, I'm like, better do a quality check on that bag. Like I, I will do that. I, uh, I've been getting into doing my own popcorn at home. Uh, and just basically going crazy with the seasonings. I think I've probably just arrived at the very uh, watches Bon Appetit YouTube once combo of nutritional yeast, salt, and a little bit of chili powder. But nice. um, if you really get into it, like, and you just got like garlic powder and Old Bay, and then like shaved parm, and it's a little bit of like. It's just like you could get pretty wild out there with uh, with um, popcorn seasonings. That's where where I'm going personally. You ever you ever mess with furikake on your on your popcorn? Like a Japanese dried seaweed? No, doesn't the flavoring big, big homie David some? Chang sell some of that now? He's got chili crisp, which, by the way, I feel like there should be some cross pod. Like he should lace us up with that. I'm sure we could find a extra small sized. The watch tea from five years ago <laughs> for his children. I guess I, we don't. Mallory, do you think I could borrow your the watch tell t-shirt so I can date Jay? Because only Mallory has one. Yeah. I think that's possible. We don't have enough merch. What would our I was on be, a Zoom Chris? call with Mal the other day, and she was wearing a watch t-shirt. She's the she's the she's the greatest. Yeah. What a what a kind soul. But maybe for tenth anniversary, which we still haven't planned any kind of celebration. Maybe we need some. Maybe we need some merch. I'm not sure what. What let's let's put that to people. Tenth like, anniversary be... is going to be uh, like a Joe Rogan esque four hour interview with Kaya. Yes, <laughs> yes, about <laughs> alternative COVID yeah. treatment plans and you and UFC fighting. Last question, Ryan Murphy, uh, a friend select alum. So this is not Ryan Murphy. This is not TV's Ryan. No, Murphy. this but this is the school that you and I went to, and we had a couple other questions. Um, uh, I didn't go to that school. No, no, no. I mean, this is the school that I went to. Ryan yes. says, do you guys sometimes miss meeting for worship, which is the weekly uh, yes. you know, religious gathering of Quaker schools? Um, and do you sometimes miss meeting for worship? And how did your Quaker education shape your TV habits? I thought this was a really interesting question. I'll tell you what. I went to a pretty small school. So there were only like 50 kids in my class, like something like that. And... You mean, we do so much conversation about like the idea of this water cooler thing. I'll tell you something, man. Starting in like sixth grade, the crew used to meet and be like, did you watch Herman's Head last night? <laughs> you know what I mean? Did you see in living color and reenacting like in living color sketches or talking about Simpsons lines? And that went on for a little while where you, like you would kind of... You were the Fox Channel generation it was like Clearly, the McLaughlin just group, in. but just like little kids being like damn <laughs> did you see that about Herman's you got last night dudes up there so yeah that was that was definitely the idea that you didn't gather to watch no the shows no right so it, there was like a very special time right before i feel like everybody got into um dating where you know <laughs> like tv was still something that we talked about a lot and i i carried that with me into my my later years as far as like what I do miss me for worship just because uh, I would love to have 45 minutes where I just 
didn't talk. Just just sit quietly. Yeah. Did you ever um so meeting for worship is is really a <laughs> if we were going to do a listicle of like <laughs> best religious services, I would be my number one because uh-huh. you just sit quietly and reflect. But because having children sit quietly and reflect is hard always. I don't know if your school did this, but like in mi- like in lower school and middle school, it got a little questionable. Like basically, it, if your class was hosting meeting for worship that week, you could kind of pre-program something for people to think about. And this is like around Earth Day. And I remember we played a song from the Greenpeace Rainbow Warriors compilation <laughs> album. And I, I shut, I don't know, maybe it was by like Ultravox or something about like, you know, make sure you don't cut down trees. And like, can you imagine a bunch of 12 year olds playing this on a boombox and staring at an elementary school and then just giving you the like, but are you thinking about it? Look for the next 40 minutes. It was a cool vibe. Um, I'm with you. I remember very, very strongly in, I must've, it must've been like third or fourth grade talking in the cafeteria about the previous night's episodes of Cosby Show and Family Ties. Yeah. Like that is what everyone watched, especially Cosby Show was huge and everyone watched it. And I remember once I got in trouble and I couldn't watch TV and I missed the, that week's episode, which meant it was gone until the summer, maybe. And that was a real, I really feel the loss. Mm-hmm. Like that was awful. Not, it was FOMO, early FOMO, early onset FOMO. I think, this will surprise absolutely no one, but that era predating post the launch of the Fox network, which was clearly important to us. I do remember talking about in living color and did you see the sketches or whatever, but this will surprise no one that I also remember disdaining married with children. Right. Just kind of, that was, it was kind of beneath you. Lowest common denominator stuff. It was lowbrow. Yes. (laughs) Yes. What a little prick I was. Even then, um, incredible. We can wrap it up there. Thank you guys so much for your questions. Uh, we'll do another one of these before the end of the year or maybe for year end. Uh, we will be back. Can I say, before we say this, I feel like I just want to plug again. I had such a good time doing the rewatchables with you on one of our favorite movies, Train Spotting. And I think some people have discovered that we, again, with our unparalleled knack for contemporary broadcasting, we opened that podcast with like a 15 minute origin story of ourselves. Oh, yeah, that that's right. It does involve the night that we met for the first time, which I think Chris is now, I think listeners have noticed this. Chris has gotten a little more relaxed that, that statute of limitations on, on, on drug convictions. <laughs> I think we've reached that point yeah. at the 25, at the quarter century. I don't think mark. that I'm in Larry Krasner's bullseye <laughs> no, anymore. I, I think that Larry Krasner, I think the new season of Philly DA is about expunging anything related to Chris Ryan in the late nineties yeah. and early two thousands. So um, I, I hope people check it out. That was really fun to do. All right. Well, we can wrap it up there. We'll be back on Monday. We'll talk a little bit about Squid Game and then, um, yeah, we're getting right into succession season. So what we're going to try and do is we're going to be putting up our episodes of The Watch that were usually on Mondays. They'll go up Sunday night at the end of uh, the succession broadcast. So you'll be able to get our succession thoughts as soon as possible. A lot of other succession stuff planned. Andy, it was so good to see you. You as well, Chris. Thank you. Chris is going out of town. Have a great trip. Have a great weekend to all our Baranskis. Yeah, and uh, thank you to Kai McMullen for producing. We'll talk to you guys soon.